So I was inspired to think about becoming a scientist by watching popular science shows, nature programs, where people would communicate scientific information in an entertaining way. And so I thought that that's a good way to reach out to people who might not think about science as being a career and also just to sort of generally educate people so that they can learn interesting and surprising things. Another aspect, I guess, is as well, given the fact that I do basic research that's sort of not going to directly benefit humanity, then I feel like it's a, a bit of an obligation to me to use my expertise for something that is going to benefit society somehow. So even if I'm not curing cancer, then, well, I'm answering people's questions, and that's valuable in some way as well. <laughs> Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and in this episode I talk to Jessica Abbott, Senior University Lecturer in Eukaryote Evolutionary Genetics at Lund University and Natural Sciences Fellow here at SCAS during the autumn term of 2021. That is right now. And this is the third episode in our theme, Live Sciences, and we will hear about Jessica Abbott's research on the evolution of sex differences and sex chromosomes. We will also talk about science communication. Jessica Abbott is one of the scientists answering questions from an interested audience on a popular TV show and is also working on a popular science book during her stay here at SCAS. And of course, we will get into the subject of interdisciplinarity. Our regular listeners know that that is one of our favorite topics on this podcast. Welcome to SCAS Talks, Jessica. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so my name is Jessica Abbott, and uh, as you said, I'm a senior lecturer in eukaryote evolutionary genetics at Lund University, when I'm not at SCAS. Yeah, that's nice. It's nice that they lend you out um, here. <laughs> so very broadly, just to start off with, what is your research about? Yeah, so I'm interested in the evolution of sex differences, and that has in more recent years led me to looking at sex chromosome evolution and sort of where sex chromosomes come from and how they evolve. And how did you get interested in this topic? I've always been kind of interested in evolution and evolutionary biology. When I was a PhD student, I worked on a species of damselfly that had different female color morphs. So they had green and blue, and sort of the blue-colored female is the same color as a male. So they were thought to be a male mimic. And so these differences between the sexes, but also between females within a sex, got me sort of interested in, you know, where do these sex differences come from? What controls them? How do they change over time? That kind of thing. And now you also work with the fruit fly, Drosophila, and... A worm, flatworm. It's called Macrostomum lignano. It's not so well known. <laughs> Why do you study these tiny little creatures? So the main method that we use in my group is experimental evolution. So we have populations of organisms in the lab. We expose them to some sort of selection pressure. We kind of change their environment or change their you know, genetic composition somehow so that then they can evolve to respond to this change. And to do that, it's good to have organisms that are small and easy to keep in the lab and have a short generation time. And so the flatworms and the, the fruit flies are both good in this respect. The reason why we started working with the flatworms, which is a newer addition to my research, is because they're hermaphroditic. So they're sort of both male and female at the same time. So then you can do different types of experiments with them than what you can do with the fruit flies, because fruit flies have males and females just like us. So you cultivate the little flies that most of us don't want in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, that's actually one of the most common questions that I get is how do I get rid of them? <laughs> 
And oh, are they on my, you know, fruit? Do I bring them in? Are they growing there? Yeah, that's the other thing that people often wonder about. It's not that hard to get rid of them, really. I mean, you know, these typical tips where you have a little, you know, glass of fruit juice or something and put a little bit of um, soap or something in it to break the surface tension, that works pretty well. Or you could make like a little funnel so that they go into the jar, but then they don't get out again. That's what we do in our lab. And when it comes to whether they, you know, are coming in on the, the food that you buy, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the larvae and the eggs, they're visible with the naked eye. They're not microscopic or something. And when the larvae are growing in the food, they really chew it up. It really looks nasty. <laughs> so if you had them growing in your fruit, you would definitely notice. So you don't have to be concerned about that. Very good that we clarify this very important questions also. But now if we go more into your research, so it's about the evolutionary genetics of sex differences, especially sexually antagonistic genetic variation, it says on your university website. So let's try to pick this apart a little bit. If we start with the first part, evolutionary genetics of sex differences, what does that mean? Yeah, so this is partially where the sex chromosomes come in, because it's like, how do the sex chromosomes play a role in making females and males different from each other? But also other things, sort of just what things is it that select for males and females to be different? And then what genes is it that sort of tend to play into these differences? So it's the, the combination of genetics and evolution, really. Do you have some example there, what you're looking at? So we get a little bit more of a clearer picture. Yeah, so one of the experiments that we've had running for a long time is a female limited X chromosome evolution experiment. So what we do is we have flies, we use a specific sort of genetic construct that forces the X to always go from mother to daughter. And I mean, normally the X is inherited that way, but it's also passed from mother to son. So we use this genetic construct to keep that from happening. And so then this means that the X chromosomes are never finding themselves in males. So any sort of variation that might be good for males, but bad for females, it can be selected away. And the X chromosome can sort of specialize for female fitness. And one of the things that we've seen is that the flies that have this evolved X chromosome, they get bigger. And in fruit flies, females are larger than males. That's a pretty common pattern in insects. So this suggests that actually it would be better for the females to be even bigger than they are now, but they can't sort of get there because of selection in males. And so then we can look at what genetic changes might be playing into this difference in size. Yeah, because difference in size is quite a usual feature in the animal world, right? It is, yeah, it's very common. Do you have anything exciting ongoing right now? You're here at SCAS, but your research group is in, in Lund. Anything exciting happening? I guess the most exciting thing is that I have a new project starting up. So I had one, you know, going on for several years that's winding down now, and I have a PhD student who's going to defend next uh, spring. So that's exciting, too, that he's sort of getting all of his results together and going to write his thesis. But when it comes to sort of, yeah, new things, then the fact that I'm starting a new project about the evolution of dosage compensation, I would say that that's quite exciting. And so dosage compensation, we'll have to talk a little bit about like sex chromosomes here to explain what that's about. So humans have X and Y chromosomes and females have two X's and males have an X and a Y. And so this means that, you know, all else being equal, if you have two copies of something, then you can make more of that gene product, that protein, than if you only have one copy. So this is potentially a problem for males because they only have one X chromosome. And the genes on the Y, most of them can't really sub in for, for the effect of the X. So this means that they can be sort of deficient in genes that are on the X chromosome. And different species have evolved different ways to deal with this. So 
in the fruit flies, the males just upregulate the eggs. They just make more copies of or more sort of protein from the same origin. Uh, in humans, it's kind of complicated. The females turn on and mammals in general, females kind of turn off one X and then upregulate the other to balance it out. In nematodes, there's another system again. So there's lots of different possible ways to solve this problem in evolutionary time. And not every organism seems to have a problem with it either. So one of the things that we're trying to understand is, you know, how does dosage compensation evolve in the first place? Why is it important? Your project also says that you study especially sexually antagonistic genetic variations. So what is that and how does it work? Yeah, so this is one of the things that's considered to be an important driving factor in the evolution of sex chromosomes. So that when a sex chromosome arises, then often the sort of X and Y will be very similar to each other other than the sex-determining gene. And then over time, the Y chromosome shrinks and loses genes. And these sorts of changes then are thought to be related to sort of specialization for one sex or the other. And so sexually antagonistic variation is when you have the same gene variant that it has opposite selection pressures between the sexes. So it would be good in one sex and bad in the other, basically. And so there's actually an example in humans looking at height and where they were able to show that If you looked at pairs of siblings, then you could see that within a sibling pair, if the man was taller than average, then he ended up having more children than average. But if the woman was shorter than average, she had to have more children than average. And so you have basically a situation where genes that make you tall are being favored in men, but being disfavored in women and vice versa. And because the genes for height, we know that they have the same sort of effect on both sexes, then this means that there's kind of a genetic tug of war going on over this trait. So, I mean, there's an overall difference between males and females in body size in humans, as there is in a lot of species. But if you think about it, you know, if you have a family of tall people, then both men and women are, tend to be tall in that family. And a family of short people, then both of them tend to be short, right? Your research, how can you apply it to, to humans or to anything else, really? I mean, what can you do with your research results that you find out in your lab? I mean, for me, it's not about any direct applications to humans. It's not anything where we're going to, you know, cure cancer or solve, you know, sex-linked diseases because of the work that I do. It's more about putting everything into the broader context. There's a lot of, you know, theoretical ideas out there about how things work. And so what I try to do is take those theories and actually test them, and then we can know whether they're correct or not. So that's kind of the aim. And also thinking about, you know, understanding how sex differences arise, then the work that I do is a bit of a puzzle piece in understanding in general what factors drive the sexes to become more different or to become more similar. And that's something that can be useful in terms of understanding humans, because we can look at broad patterns across lots of different species and say, so where do we fit in in this sort of continuum? So it's really basic research contributing to our general understanding. Yeah, definitely. It's very important also. It's easy to forget in these days when everybody talks about applications and innovations. Well, but you never know what's going to turn out to be useful either. I mean, CRISPR-Cas9 is a nice example of that. That was basic research that now has a ton of applications. So you never know. And then talking about how you can make associations to humans or to other things is that, I mean, since you study sex differences, it's quite easy to associate with the gender differences also in, in humans. And that's always a hot topic, of course. Is there such a connection? Yeah, so there is. I mean, even though I don't study humans directly, you know, I try to keep up to date a little bit on the, the literature. And just by knowing a lot about sex differences in other species, then we can say things about humans. So for example, one of the things that is very common is that you see the most extreme differences between the sexes when you have a lot of promiscuity. So 
males and females are mating with multiple different partners. And then this sort of is selecting for them to have very, very different strategies because they can get more offspring in different ways, basically. For monogamous species or mostly monogamous species that have one partner, at least for one sort of reproductive episode, like birds, for example, songbirds that have the same partner during a given breeding season, there you have the same interest, right? I mean, you're cooperating to, you know, produce offspring that are related to both of you. And so there's not really any conflict of interest. And so your strategies tend to be more similar then. So that's a very broad pattern that we see that animals that are more, and plants for that matter, that are more monogamous tend to be more similar and ones that are more promiscuous tend to be more different. And so when it comes to humans, then there's a fair bit of evidence that suggests that we're mostly monogamous, not 100%, obviously, but that in some ways we're a lot like songbirds that we tend to sort of have one partner at a time, mostly reproduce with that partner. We might not stay with the same partner throughout our lifespan, but that we generally, the social partner, as it's called, is usually the biological parent of the offspring. And so then this means that we wouldn't really expect to see gigantic sex differences between males and females. And if you compare us to our closest relatives, chimpanzees, then actually that's the case. So the difference in body size is about 30% in chimps, and it's only about 15% in humans, so it's only about half as much. So we are actually quite similar. Well, yeah. I mean, if you compare to a lot of other species, you know, you have organisms where the male might weigh four times as much as a female, not 15% (laughs) more. So that's a pretty modest difference. And I mean, we tend to look at various traits and say, oh, well, but men have hair on their face and and that kind of thing. Yeah, but those are fairly, you know, subtle traits. And, And when it comes to cognitive differences between the sexes, then there's a lot of overlap. There's usually quite poor evidence for there being a very large difference between the sexes when it comes to things that have to do with personality and intelligence. Here at SCAS, you are working on a popular science book. Very exciting. Of course, I'm biased there. Can you tell us more about this project? What are you doing? So this is a book that I'm writing together with a friend of mine who's a science journalist. And so the idea is that we're going to try to draw on each other's strengths to produce something that will be interesting for people to read. It's about the evolution of life on Earth, but kind of seen through the lens of could this happen on another planet? So what things that have happened on Earth are potentially universal and what things might not be? For example, Evolving bacteria probably is pretty easy because it seems like it happened very fast in the the evolution of life on Earth. But evolving sex might not be because it seems to have only happened once, basically. And it took a long time for it to happen as well. (laughs) It took a couple of billion years. We had these episodes in the summer about life in outer space. That sounds quite related. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's why I applied (laughs) to come to SCAS because they had this theme about exoplanets. Because we had had this project as a sort of side thing going on for a while, then I thought, oh, this would be a good opportunity to sit down and really focus and write out a, a full proper first draft instead of just doing little bits here and there. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the topic is something that if you tell people, then they automatically think it sounds really interesting. The problem or the challenge is that a lot of it involves, you know, stuff that happened a long time ago and where the evolutionary principles are kind of abstract. So the hard part is going to be sort of telling this story in an engaging way and not making it too complicated and abstract for people. Sure. And I'm also thinking, I mean, maybe this research area is a little bit outside of your own. How do you cope with that? That's kind of a good thing in a way, because if you're going to talk about your own research to a popular audience, you really have to decide what things you want to highlight and what things you can ignore. 
And that can be easier to do if you have a little bit of distance, actually, to the topic. And you don't have to be an expert that's sort of deep into the scientific literature in the same way to be able to write a popular science book. My sort of general background knowledge of various things, like reading sort of papers on this topic from the past five years and getting a sort of feel for where's the state of the art at the moment with this question, say, the evolution of, you know, multi-celled organisms, then that's enough for me to be able to pick out the important parts and then write about them for a popular audience. I don't have to go into all of the sort of gritty details of, you know, multi-level selection type one and type two, which is nobody is going to know what that is, you know, outside of that particular field. Yeah, it's maybe easier to kill your darlings if it's not your own research. Yeah, exactly. And we are planning on having a chapter about, you know, the evolution of sex and reproduction. And we were originally thinking, okay, maybe not write it from beginning to end, because then you have to start off with all of this stuff about the formation of the earth and the origin of life, which is sort of hard to write about and not something that either of us know that well. But I didn't want to get started with writing the chapter on sex and sexual reproduction (laughs) either, because I know that I could probably write basically a whole book just about that. So I thought that it would be better to leave that for a little bit later when I had gotten into the flow of how deep do I want to go? What things do we want to include? What do we not want to include? That sounds like a smart strategy to avoid getting stuck somewhere. Yes. And your interest in science communication is nothing new, I've understood. You were one of the experts on the popular TV show Frogalund. I don't know how to say that in English. Ask Lund. Hjärtligt välkomna till Lund. Kvällens Ciceron, Robin Paulsson. Kära tittare och varmt, varmt välkomna till Fråga Lund. Programmet där ni kommer med frågorna och vi ger svaren på det ni alltid velat veta. Och med oss ikväll har vi vår delikata panel. Jag presenterar läkar Lajmen Henrik Widergren. Psykologi Tzatumana, Milta Golka. Biologi Björn Väver, Jessica Abbott. Historia Hallonen, Gunnar Wetterberg. Och så kemikörsta Ulf Henrik. Välkommen hit panelen, kul att säga. Jag måste börja med fråga. So to our listeners who don't know about the show, this is a TV show where you can send in a question about anything, really. Pretty much. Pretty much. And then the panel of scientists give you an answer. They started off with having five of us that were sort of the regular panel. But then depending on the questions that they get in, they'll, they'll bring in other people who have different areas of expertise. So that if you have a question that's not really within my area of expertise, then they might bring in someone else who could actually answer it. So it's a lot of fun. So I get a really broad range of questions because it's kind of anything to do with biology, more or less. Two of the other sort of standard members are a medical doctor. So he does a lot of the sort of physical questions like human health and things like that. And then we also have a psychological researcher. And so then she takes a lot of these sort of cognitive type questions and that kind of thing. But anything other than that, like anything that's to do with animals or plants or that kind of thing, then I answer those questions, which is, you know, a little bit difficult at times. So if it's something that's really far from my area of expertise, then I try to talk to my colleagues first to make sure that I don't give a completely incorrect answer. In general, then, why is this science communication perspective, the broader communication of science to a general audience, why is that important to you? Well, there's a few different reasons. I mean, one of the reasons why I got started was just because I thought it was fun. You know, I did theater and stuff when I was in high school. And so I I like performing in front of an audience. So that's a kind of more selfish reason. But then I know that for my own part, I was kind of inspired to do science because neither of my parents are scientists. They went to university, but they have kind of regular jobs. 
So I was inspired to think about becoming a scientist by watching popular science shows, nature programs, where people would communicate scientific information in an entertaining way. And so I thought that that's a good way to reach out to people who might not think about science as being a career and also just to sort of generally educate people so that they can learn interesting and surprising things. I think that that's useful and fun. Another aspect, I guess, is as well, given the fact that I do basic research that's sort of not going to directly benefit humanity, then I feel like it's a, a bit of an obligation to me to use my expertise for something that is going to benefit society somehow. So even if I'm not curing cancer, then, well, I'm answering people's questions and that's valuable in some way as well. <laughs> that's a really interesting aspect, I think, because most I meet a lot of scientists who say, well, my research, nobody will understand it, so I'll never talk about it. And yeah, they just keep on doing their research all day long. They don't think about this. Well, I can talk about other things. No, and I didn't really think about that at first either. So the reason why I made a conscious decision around 2013 to actually not talk so much about my research, but try to provide my expertise to people who needed it. And that's because I went to a symposium in Stockholm that was organized by Vietnamskapo Almanhia, which is like this foundation for communication of information and research. And so the symposium was about science in schools and research in schools. And so they had done a survey, a study of high school students and teachers who had had researchers coming to the school and giving like a talk about something and then following it up later, a year later or so to say, you know, do you remember when this person came? And pretty much everyone would say, yes, I remember. And do you remember what they talked about? Mm. Not really. <laughs> and then when they sort of followed up uh, with the teachers to say, you know, well, why do you think that this doesn't make a bigger impact when we actually have researchers coming to the schools to talk to the students? What came out was that it seemed like the match between the information that they were providing and what they actually needed was not really there. Whatever the students would be learning about, maybe they hadn't covered that topic that the researcher was going to be talking about yet, or maybe they covered it like six months ago, so they'd kind of forgotten. So it was sort of hard to get the timing right. It also could be that, you know, this very sort of narrow, specific question, it wasn't really clear how that connected to the material that they were learning. And so what the sort of recommendation was and what it turned out that the teachers most wanted was that they could have someone who could give a kind of expert perspective on the material that they were learning right then. And so I got into then giving talks about epigenetic effects. So these are sort of modifications to DNA that change your traits, but without actually changing the DNA sequence. And this is something that's kind of a hot area of research. I have published one paper that was about this in Drosophila. So I've, you know, read a little bit in the scientific literature and sort of keep up to date on where the field is at. And I felt, well, okay, if this is something that they want to know more about, then I have sufficient knowledge to actually be able to talk about this in a reasonable way. And so I got started doing that. And then from there, it ended up being more and more sort of different things where if someone would say to me, hey, could you talk about this? Then I would say, yeah, why not? And if it was something I didn't know very much about, I would just do research and then be able to do an interview or give a talk or, or whatever, something where it was the needs of the audience that were in focus. I was doing it from selfless motives, more or less, because, you know, this is what people want. And so then I was hoping that I could make a positive contribution by doing this. But I do think that it also then has really helped my career in that side of things, just being willing to step outside of my comfort zone and talk about something that's not directly related to my own research. In what way does that help your career, do you think? For one thing, I mean, it's led to all of these things like Fjordland. So if we're talking about sort of the popular science aspect of things, then one thing leads to another. And so then it just got bigger and bigger because of that. But also, I think it's helped my scientific career 
in several different ways. I mean, one of the things that I didn't really think about when I was getting started doing popular science, but if you talk to anyone who does sort of science communication or research communication, I should say, to, you know, a considerable extent, they pretty much all agree that this is a skill that's useful in a lot of ways. So writing grant applications, for example, the people who read your, your grant application, most of them are not going to be experts in exactly what you do. And so to be able to explain what it is that you want to do and why it's interesting and important in a way that's accessible to non-experts is really, really useful. It's also useful in teaching, of course, because it's a similar sort of thing. You have material, you're trying to present it in a way that people are going to understand. And so then that makes it a lot easier if you have experience in that area. So I think that there's a lot of things where it can be valuable, actually. There can be sort of an attitude with some academics that, oh, it just eats up a lot of time and it doesn't do anything for your career, but it definitely does. And for me also, I've had sort of things coming out of being more visible by doing this engagement with the public. It makes me visible to other researchers as well. So then I get people asking me, well, hey, would you like to write a book chapter? Or, hey, you know, do you want to be involved in this grant application for this sort of thing? So it's also actually led to research collaborations and things like that that I wouldn't have done otherwise. Yeah, that's, of course, a very good aspect of it and a good argument to engage in this sort of outreach, even if you think that you don't have time or it's less important than your other stuff. Yeah, exactly. I was also thinking about another report from Wetenskap Almanhet, which said that, or the conclusion was that a lot of scientists say that, well, I would like to do research, more research communication and outreach, but I don't have the time. That's a common uh, argument. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, everybody's pressed for time. So, I mean, you have to make it a bit of a priority. And the reason why I started making a priority was mainly because, yeah, I thought it was fun and because I thought it was, you know, a valuable way to make a contribution. So I decided to make time. That being said, I mean, sure, I probably could have published a couple more papers by now, you know, if I hadn't spent so much time on doing those things. But I don't think I would have had as much fun. <laughs> and I don't know that that really makes that much difference in, you know, sort of terms of career trajectory, make it or break it. I mean, given that, you know, maybe I would have published four more papers by now than what I have or whatever, but I probably wouldn't have gotten as many grants as I have. So I don't see it as a sort of negative thing. I think that you have to think of it as time sort of invested in the longer term to something that's useful in the longer perspective rather than the short-term perspective. Let's get back to Fjorga Lund, the TV show. Yes. Do you have some favorite questions there that you have gotten? Yeah, so I've done a lot of episodes by now and I have multiple questions in each one. And so sometimes they also get us to research questions that then don't make it into the the show. So by now it's hard for me to remember every sort of question that I've done. But I do have a couple of favorites. I mean, so for this most recent season, then I think my favorite was, can fish get seasick? Which, you know, sounds like kind of a silly question. But when you look into it, it's actually quite interesting because there's so surprisingly large amount of research done on questions like this. Can animals get nauseated, get motion sickness, basically? And it was really funny reading about it because there's all these crazy experiments that people have done where they take for the fish, they take like an aquarium and they put it on a turntable and make it rotate really fast. Or they hang it in like a bungee cords and then make it bounce up and down. It's sealed, of course, they have to be sealed so the water doesn't get everywhere. And then they, you know, observe the fish and they see how long can they actually manage to stabilize themselves and have control of their movements. And they, they find that, you know, at a certain point, when the forces become too much, then they just, uh, they seem to give up and they can't handle it and they seem to not be very happy. So that one was kind of funny. There's many interesting aspects with this question. So one of them is how do you know 
that the animals don't feel well. So you can look at the behavior like the fish. There's some animals that can vomit, and so then that's a pretty good indication. But not all animals can. So, for example, guinea pigs, they thought for a long time, couldn't get motion sick, but it's just because they couldn't vomit, so they couldn't tell. So there was an example with quail, where they sort of put the quail, again, on one of these rotating turntable things. And then to see whether they got motion sick or not, then they gave them water to drink just before or sort of at the same time. And, and they had either regular water or water that was colored yellow and had a little bit of a vinegar flavor. And so then they exposed them to the combination of the water and the rotating, and then they would offer them the water later on and see, did they avoid the colored water? Had they managed to sort of associate that with feeling bad? And then they could show that, yeah, they avoided the colored and flavored water, which meant that, yes, they probably didn't like rotating at very high speeds and didn't feel good because of it. So there's a lot of really nifty sort of experimental <laughs> designs that people have used. And they've sent fish up into space to see how they deal with weightlessness. So that was a really interesting question. And then so someone had a follow up. Well, why do they do this? I mean, why are they torturing all these animals <laughs> this way? And I guess the ultimate reason is because we want to understand why humans get motion sick. So the fact that so many different animals have this response says, number one, that it's probably a really ancient evolutionary thing. So then it might be hard to sort of get rid of it. And it probably has adaptive value. Like it's good for us to feel sick if we're doing something really strange. But also, if you can find animals that don't get motion sick, then you can potentially find out why. And then you could potentially, you know, use this for applications in, in humans. So it's basic research, but it's something where there is kind of a question behind it, even though it sounds totally ridiculous. Do you have any other favorite question or amongst the favorites? So my favorite one of all time, I think, and I, I think it's going to be hard to, you know, displace this one because it's just such a crazy story. So this is a question that got sent in a couple of years ago, and it was a couple who live in Spain or something. I think they're retired and, you know, they eat a lemon every day. I don't know how they eat it, if they were drinking the juice or whatever. But anyway, for whatever reason, man and woman, they share a lemon every day. They cut it in half. And one person always got the part that had the stem attached. And the other person always got the part that was like the tip of the lemon. And they noticed that the tip part of the lemon tended to have more seeds than the stem part of the lemon. So they decided that they wanted to investigate this. And so they didn't just send in the question. They actually counted for like two years which half of the lemon had the most seeds. And so they sent in this information to Fjordland. So we've counted, you know, 700 whatever lemons. And of them, it was X number <laughs> where there were most seeds in the tip part and, you know, whatever number where it was most seeds. And the other part, they had counted the individual lemon seeds as well. So they'd counted over a thousand lemon seeds and saying where they're assigned to the tip or the stem part. And then they wanted to know, why is this? So I thought that this was such a great question for so many reasons. One, that they just assembled this crazy data set <laughs> of 700 lemons. The other that nobody knew, I tried to Google, I tried to do research, I tried to like figure out, it, as far as I could tell, nobody had done any work on this before. I talked to some of the botanists at work and asked them and they were like, hmm, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so they had to think about it as well. And they, they then sort of supplied me with a reasonable answer, which I could then use on the show. And so it was an interesting answer as well, actually, like a totally biologically plausible one that they came up with. And so it's that when the lemon is being formed, then you have the flower that is at the sort of tip part and you have ovules, which are sort of the unfertilized like eggs of the plant at the bottom. And so when the pollen hits the flower, then it grows down. 
and it'll fertilize the ovules that are closest to the flower first. So those are the ones that are closest to the tip of the lemon when it starts to produce fruit. So that's interesting. But the other thing is that they said that this is something that's very specific to domesticated plants, that they can produce fruit even though you don't have very many seeds that have gotten fertilized. There's ovules that have gotten fertilized. So normally, like a wild plant wouldn't even bother to produce a fruit if there were only one or two of the seeds that could grow. And so this is something that humans have selected for, this capacity to produce a fruit, even though it's sort of a waste for the plant. And so this is the reason why they were, you know, finding just one or two seeds normally per lemon and that they were usually at that tip part, because it's something to do about the biology of the organism, but then also the way humans have domesticated them. So I thought that that was a really fun question in a lot of different ways. And like I say, I have trouble seeing that there's going to be a sort of better one that comes in than that, because it's pretty hard to top someone who has, you know, counted lemons every day for two years. Certainly an engaged question. I was thinking it sounds all really fun and you have explained the benefits of doing that, but how do your colleagues and other people react to this? Because sometimes it's not seen as such a good thing to talk about or to answer research questions outside of your own research. What are your experiences on that? Everybody at my department has been really supportive. We have a fairly strong tradition of doing outreach at my department. There's a number of other people who do, you know, other kind of big things. And so nobody thinks that it's a bad thing. They think that it's great that it's raising the profile of the department. It's great that people are learning more about biology. So they're all very positive. Once or twice, there's been something where I read something in the literature and then someone has been like, hmm, that's maybe like within our field, that's maybe not quite so certain as you made it sound. But it was the sort of thing where that's really kind of niche and, and they didn't think that it was a problem per se, that I had maybe made it sound more certain than it was when it was something that could potentially be considered more tentative. Other people on the show, Armita, one of the, she sometimes got a little bit of flack apparently from her colleagues that they, you know, sort of like, why are you wasting your time with that? And when the show first came out, actually, there was a lot of negative press about how it wasn't serious enough, that it was too silly. But I think that that's mainly based on sort of the wrong expectations, that people were thinking that this was going to be more for an academic type of audience, but that's not who they were aiming for. And of course, you know, you have to have a different sort of approach if you're aiming for a non-academic audience. And I think actually the best comment that I got, particularly in the first year, was from one of the people who was working at the kids' school, and this was someone who was working as like helper in the class didn't particularly have any university education. And she said to me, you know, I never watch science shows. I think they're super boring, but I like Fjordalund. <laughs> I think it's fun. And I was like, well, that's exactly the sort of person that you want to reach, the people who wouldn't normally be getting that kind of information. So I think that's really valuable, actually. And because that's also the hardest audience to reach. Because yeah. if you're already interested, you, you look things up and look for events or shows or podcasts or whatever. Exactly. It's, you know, light and fun and it doesn't go into an awful lot, awful lot of depth with, you know, the questions because you don't have time to do that. But if it's getting people interested so that maybe they then do go and look something up or they maybe do go and watch a show that's a little bit more in depth, you know, a documentary that's a little bit more serious or whatever, then I think that, that it's a great starting point. Of course, I agree. But I work with this. But then let's return to your research right now or to what you do here at SCAS and the research environment. So this fall you're a fellow here at SCAS and you're part of an interdisciplinary research environment here. What are your experiences so far? Yeah, so it's really nice. It's interesting to be here, you know, and have a different 
office and, you know, be meeting new people and that kind of thing. I did think that there would be more people in the natural sciences who would be here at the same time as me. Most of them, I think it seems like they're coming in the spring instead or else we're here previous spring. So I do feel like I'm a little bit of the odd one out to some extent. But that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's really interesting to hear about what the other people are working on. And it's nice with all the activities to help us to get to know each other and stuff. So I think it's great to both have the time to sort of set aside to work on the project. And also interesting to hear about all the other things that the other fellows are working on. Have you gotten any interesting input so far? Any new ideas? You know, my work is so far away from what the other people do. Then I guess it was most useful when I gave a seminar about my planned book project, because then I could see the sort of questions that people had, like what things they maybe were misunderstanding a little bit or, you know, where I could see, okay, I'm going to have to think about this when writing the book. So one thing was competition. You know, everybody thinks with evolution that is a competition, survival of the fittest, right? And of course, that's an important factor. But you can also be successful by cooperating. I mean, you wouldn't have social species like bees or even like us if there wasn't a value to cooperating as well. So that made me realize that because they got kind of stuck on the competition angle, that I probably should lift the cooperative side of things as well and make that clear that this is also a really important force within evolution. Yeah, sure. We don't survive on our own. No, I mean, some species can, but but we're very social for sure. And then Lund, you have also been part of another interdisciplinary environment, the Puffendorf Institute. Can you tell us a little bit more about that environment, how it compares to SCUS? The setup is quite different because here you have to have a project that you are planning to do by yourself and that you can do here regardless of your interactions with the other people. It can be valuable to talk to the other fellows, but I think the idea is that you should be able to do whatever you plan to do, even if you don't get anything out of talking to them specifically. Whereas the setup in Lund at the Puffendorf Institute is that you have to get more local people together from at least three faculties and then apply for a project to deal with a specific topic or a specific question. So they'll also bring in external speakers and guest researchers and stuff, but it's sort of more for the local researchers to get people together from different disciplines to work together. And so there, when I was involved in that, our project was about new life forms. So if we create life in the lab or artificial intelligence, or if we discover life in outer space, so that's where the space connection comes in. And there, even though we were sort of, you know, from very many different backgrounds and we already had like a reasonably clear goal of what it is that we were working towards. And so from that, then we've applied for, you know, research funding together. Some constellations within the group have been successful and have projects running now. Others were still trying, but there it's sort of easier to start a collaboration that then can continue because you're already in the same location. So I think that SCAS and Puffendorf Institute, that their different models are useful for different things. So here it's more like, I can work on my specific project and I can get a lot done on that and I can get input from people with very different perspectives, but that it's a lot about getting a network of people that I know from all different places and me learning more about many different topics. Whereas in, at the Puffendorf Institute, then it was more like, well, now this is kind of an incubator for potential new ideas and potential collaborations with the people who are already there. It's quite different approaches, I would say. So I think both are, are useful. If you were to build your own interdisciplinary research environment, what would you do? I think I'd probably try to have a combination of the two, to be honest with you, given that they're kind of fulfilling different needs. And I think for some people here, the interactions that you know they have are going to lead to new research ideas and potentially new research down the road as well, right? But it's probably in a more long-term perspective. 
than what it was with the Puffendorf Institute, where we basically started applying for funding together the year after. So I think it would be, would be nice to have a little bit of a mix of the two systems so that you could have some programs that are more for like people to come and work on their individual projects, but and others where it's more bottom up where researchers at the university come together to do something together that's really interdisciplinary. And where you maybe also have a theme around something or so? Yeah, I mean, they call them themes. And I think if you could sort of get those themes to mesh, then that would be useful because then the people who have their individual projects could potentially also interact with the ones who have the theme that they've decided that they, they want to work on. It's always interesting to look at this uh, different research environments and what really makes them also sort of creative where you can do new things. The other thing that's different with the, the setup is the environment, as you say, because here you're coming here from potentially far away, you get an apartment, you have an office, you, you know, go to lunch with the same people, and it's, it's five days a week for a semester or for a whole academic year. At the Puffinor Institute, because it's for local people, then I mean, you still have your regular work and you still have your regular home and you still do all your regular stuff. But you have eight months where you're basically spending one day a week at the Puffendorf Institute and getting together with these people. So it's more like a smaller amount of time that's spread out over a while so that then you can, you know, work together to generate these ideas. How do you manage your lab group from far away? Yeah. Not that far away, but at least not from the same location. Yeah, so I've been having a lot of Zoom meetings, basically. I would have liked to be able to take a sort of proper sabbatical this term, but I felt like with a new PhD student starting and one just finishing up, and I'm also the deputy head of my department at the moment, so I kind of have to be available if the head is not available. So I didn't really feel like I could sort of completely step back from all of that. So I'm trying to basically do most of the stuff that I usually do and then do the stuff here on top of that. So that's uh, a little bit challenging. So it means doing a lot of Zoom meetings and stuff. The good thing, I guess, is that everybody's used to Zoom meetings now. So it's a lot easier than it would have been if I was going to try to do this before the pandemic. That's true. We're used to interacting via the computer now. What will you take back to learn from here? Well, hopefully I'll have, you know, a big chunk of the first draft of this book <laughs> done so I can take that home and then finish off the last little bits, you know, and then revise it and, uh, and so on. I was hoping that I would have a full sort of first draft of my sections, at least. We're kind of writing the first draft of like every second chapter, my co-author and I. So we're going to have 12 chapters plus like an intro and an ending, but we'll write the intro and the ending after the bulk of the book is done. I don't think I'm going to be able to do all six in the time that I'm here, but hopefully four should be done and maybe started on the fifth one. Having a big chunk of the work out of the way, then it'd be easier for me to finish off the rest on the side when I go back to Lund. That seems to be the case with a lot of the people here as well, actually. There's several people who are working on book projects of various types, and most of them are not planning to write like a whole draft in the time that they're, they're here, that they have you know, some ambition to write some section or a certain number of chapters or something. In terms of other experiences, what will you bring along also? Just meeting all the people here and hearing about what they work on and, you know, hearing about things that I had no idea that you could do research on this is, you know, that's always really interesting. Theater studies, you know, the sort of questions that you can ask in that and sort of the historians here, the angles that they're taking on their, their sort of questions. I think that's really interesting. Other than that, actually, it's kind of nice to spend a little bit more time in Uppsala and get to know the city a little bit. I did a postdoc here about 10 years ago. But I was commuting at the time. My family was living in the southern part of Sweden. I was commuting up every second week. So when I was here, I basically just worked and didn't really do anything. I didn't have any money either because I was a postdoc. So I didn't really do much in Uppsala. So it's nice to, to be here and SCAS organizes these activities and that I have a bit more time to just 
look around and see things in Uppsala. Uh, and having the chance to you know get together with people in Stockholm because it's close. Because I have colleagues that I know from there. I have people that I know from working on Frogaloon and stuff. So I, then I can go into Stockholm and get together with them and see them. And that's also fun. So just being in a different part of a country can also be quite nice. You don't have to go abroad always. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's convenient to know the language and to know the way things work and stuff so that I'm still in a new environment, but not everything is new. So, so that's actually nice. Is there anything else we should talk about? Do you want to say anything more about your research? Or? I don't know. Is there anything that you think that you think people would be interested in? How do fruit flies have sex? <laughs> There's a lot of interesting work on fruit fly sex. They have really long sperm. So the flies themselves are small, but the species that has the biggest sperm in the world is actually a fruit fly, and they're six centimeters long. So they're bigger than the fly itself. They sort of roll them up into balls, and then they transfer them to the female. And then the female has this really long, crazy reproductive tract, and then they kind of like unfurl and go through the reproductive tract to fertilize the eggs. But even sort of the regular Drosophila melanogaster fruit flies that everybody sees in their wine glass, their sperm are like a millimeter long. Long for, you know a cell. And there seems to be some sort of advantage to longer sperm that they can better find their way in the female's reproductive tract to fertilize the eggs, or maybe that it's something to do with the quality of the sperm. So it seems like there's some sort of selection pressure making these little tiny organisms have these quite big sperm. And the males, they transfer these proteins in their ejaculate that manipulate the female in different ways. So they make her lay more eggs. They make her not want to mate with other males. And so people have done studies where they've genetically modified the flies to knock out the genes for these seminal fluid proteins one at a time to try to figure out what their function is. And then they can show, well, this particular one is the one that has the sort of mating suppression, remating suppression function. And this is the one that has kind of the egg laying stimulation function and stuff. So there's actually a lot of interesting research <laughs> on that topic, believe it or not. There you go. This is how a silly question can give you a lot of new knowledge. But that's the way it is with Krogelun a lot of the time, is that the questions sound kind of silly. But then when you actually do research, then they can be really interesting. Thank you very much for being on Scus Talks and talking to me and our listeners, of course. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Scus Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third episode in the theme Life Sciences. And I have talked to Jessica Abbott, Senior University Lecturer in Eukaryote Evolutionary Genetics from Lund University and Natural Sciences Fellow at SCAS during the autumn term of 2021. We have heard more about her research on the evolution of sex differences and sex chromosomes and her own experience of science communication to a broader audience. In the previous episodes within the theme Life Sciences, I have talked to Troy Day, Professor of Mathematics, Statistics and Biology at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, about his work on modeling during the COVID-19 pandemic and some of his research on evolutionary epigenetic biology. We have previously also heard Erica Johnson, Professor in Gender and Society at Linköping University, about her recent book A Cultural Biography of the Prostate. These are episodes 25 and 22 respectively, if you want to listen. This fall and winter, SCAS Talks is featuring the following topics Life Sciences, Infrastructures and Asia. Previous topics have been the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. 
We now have a total of 27 episodes and are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Lea and I would like to thank Jessica Abbott once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course, thank you for listening. Bye for now.